Alrighty. So, I will be taking intermittent slurps of tea tonight uh, to wake me up. But we're in Hebrews chapter 10. And uh, let me ask this. Um, from what we did last week, any of you got any concerns or any of you got any observations or things that you might want to bring up about last week's lesson? <coughs> My question is, is, is this directed to a church or a group of people or a town? Uh-huh. It's, it's uh, directed towards a group. Um, not a church. Um, the word church or the Greek term is in there, but of course that just means a called out assembly. It doesn't always mean a church as in what you know, we think of it. So we've got to be careful there. Um, the only clue that we have really is uh, its title to the Hebrews and then also that what it says about not forgetting to assemble together. Do you see? But again, that would be true whether this was directed fundamentally to a church situation or to a a Jewish-Israelite situation. You know, it's the same. Many of the same things apply, you see? Which is why taking the tack that I took with this and that we'll continue to take for the first um, half an hour or whatever. Uh, it, doesn't, it doesn't change anything as far as the teaching that's applicable to the church. What it does do is it deals with the epistle head on. And this is one of the things that, that uh, I think the book of Hebrews has suffered from is that Christians have not dealt with the book head on. There's been lots of great works written about it. But when they've come particularly to the, uh, those problem passages in chapter 6 and chapter 10, um, they have either said, yeah, these prove that you can lose your salvation, okay, which in and of themselves, in and of itself, that's not a fundamental problem saying that because they do say that. the problem is theological, and the problem is, yeah, but if if that's the case, then how do you how do you deal with the theology of you know of Paul and and so on? And I'll write that on the board so you can see what I'm talking about here on that. The other thing is that remember Hebrews doesn't get give you a you can lose your salvation and get it back. It's like you've lost it and it's, you're done. Um, 
And that teaching is usually not held by any of those that believe you can lose your salvation. Um, so it, it's not an easy thing to address. But once you do address it, and you ask the questions that I've tried to ask last week, and we noted the Jewishness of it, we noticed the, remember the, the focus on eschatology, the focus on the kingdom, the focus on the entering into rest, and how Jewish it was, how Israelitish it was, how Old Testamenty it was. Uh, remember we put a, a lot of emphasis on that. And when you stick it there, all of a sudden it starts to make a lot more sense. And I think it will make a, a little bit more sense to you uh, when I, I kind of illuminate it a little bit from the book of Revelation and from Matthew, which is what I'll do this uh, this evening. Okay? So, we don't have all of our answers questions, but our questions answered. But, you know, here's, here's the thing, okay? Um, so, I, I have, how many? Seven? Eight? More than most people want to take, anyway. Courses on systematic theology. Okay? They comprise uh, about 220 lectures, detailed lectures. Mm on systematic theology. And yet, with all of the detail and all of the, the reading that's involved in it, um, you have to say that you can only push any doctrine so far. And then you, you come up against questions that cannot be answered with the revelation that we have. It's what I call frayed edges. Every Bible doctrine has frayed edges. So, you're okay, but until you come to the frayed edges and then you've got questions and they, you, you can only speculate as to what the answers are. Do you see? Because the Bible does not do that. Um, for example, the mechanics of the new birth, the mechanics of the new birth are not explained in the Bible. Uh, we are told that you have to be regenerated, you have to be born again, but how that's done, you're not told. How the Holy Spirit does that, we have no idea. Do you see? And this is where speculation can come in. Because you have some people will teach that uh, the Holy Spirit will not, um, will not impede or violate our free will so that we ex we exercise our free will utterly freely and then the Holy Spirit kind of rubber stamps that, do you see? Then you have others that will say, well, the Holy Spirit must convict us and so on and bring us to a realization of sin. This is more of my position. Um, and But the, the actual decision is ours. And then you have the more reformed people who will say no you're actually regenerated before you believe you're born again before you actually believe in Jesus I mean they they say it's a it's only a logical not a chronological thing but the problem is that it actually is a chronological it ends up being chronological and uh, it actually isn't logical <laughs> um, so uh, be, because of that we can never fully answer 
many of these questions. Okay, but anyway, let's let's just write a few things on the board to highlight uh, why Hebrews is such a pain in the neck for a, a lot of people. All right, and these are kind of theological teachings, okay? But they're, they're related, obviously, to, to verses and so on. <clears throat> so the first thing is, let's talk about the Christian, okay? The Christian is, okay, in Christ. Now, what that means is that he, she is in union with Christ, they're united to Christ. They're also in Christ's body, the church. Okay? And they're part, they're, they're a building block within that spiritual entity then also uh, they are Ephesians tells us okay bone of his bone flesh of his flesh now I know it's I understand it's it's kind of metaphorical but you understand look at the relation there what this union actually looks like. Do you see? They're in Christ, they're not in Adam. Okay? They're not in Adam at all. In Adam all die, in Christ all shall all be made alive. Um, moreover, uh, they are not of this world. Then they are citizens, not of this world, but the, uh, Philippians 3, citizens of heaven. They have heavenly citizenship. Um, the Holy Spirit resides in them. as a pledge or deposit of what's to come. This happens because they have been justified, which is a legal or forensic term. Okay? It's a legal term. Now, sanctification is not a legal term. Sanctification is what God has done. He separated you to himself. Um, and then progressive sanctification is, is us trying to grow <laughs> less like ourselves and more like Christ. Which is, you know, if, it's anything, if you're anything like me, it's like scrambling up the ladder only to fall down it again. Um, but we're justified, you see? <clears throat> um... Jesus says, no man takes us out of his or the Father's 
hand. We are accepted, this is because of our justification, in the beloved. Uh, we are born again, or born anew, we'll put it that way, we're regenerated. Okay? We have died to sin. Romans 6. Um, we must stand before, I'll just put the bema here, the judgment seat of Christ, 2 Corinthians 5.10. Okay, we must stand before the judgment seat of Christ. That our works are judged, not our sins, but our works. I mean, I could, I could say, <laughs> I was going to say I could fill the board, but I have filled the board. Um, but I could fill two boards with, with all of the dis- Bible's descriptions of the Christian. You see, nothing separates us from the love of God. Romans 8. Why? Well, because... There is no condemnation to those who are in Christ. Do you see? Now, many of these things are, um, well, they are interrelated. We're also adopted into God's family. And uh, as you may know, in the ancient world, if you adopted a son, he became the heir. You see, even over the natural kids. Yeah, I mean, that was, it was a big deal. So, um, I'm not saying that that's what's happening here, but, but what I'm saying is there's a very strong doctrine of adoption in the New Testament. It's not, well, it's not a flimsy thing. Yeah, there wasn't a great deal of adoption that went on really. But anyway, I mean, it, it did go on. And it just goes on and on and on. And if you really consider these these kinds of things, um, you know, can we lose our salvation? Well, well, oh, forget this one, of course. We're saved by what? By being a good guy? No, we're not. In fact, <clears throat> uh, let's be honest, we're all dirtbags. Okay? We are, really are. I mean, now we're dirtbags. And uh, without the Holy Spirit, without uh, the grace of God, we have nothing. Paul says, I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwells no good thing. And that's true. <laughs> no good thing. Anything that's good in us is good because Christ's seal is on it and the Holy Spirit is working through it. Remember, for something to be good, it has to be rightly connected to God. It can't just be our what we call good. 
It has to be what God recognizes as good. So, um, so do you see it's not easy to lose your salvation? Do you see? Well, the argument comes back and it's, it's, it's a, a worthwhile argument. Um, yeah, but you can walk away willingly. Okay? That, like, no man can take you out of my hand and no man can take you out of my father's hand and so on. But you, yeah, but you can actually get up and walk away. That's kind of the, the argument. And, and I understand that. But, but even in the context here, that's a difficult one to deal with because, do you know the context of this? No one will take you out of my hand or the Father is greater than all. It's the good shepherd. Well, the good shepherd wouldn't be a very good shepherd if he allowed sheep to run away. You know, he, he'd grab them by his hand, wouldn't he? He'd be a pretty rotten shepherd. You ever tried herding sheep? <laughs> I did years ago. Years ago, I was invited. I was unemployed. This is a long time ago, but I was unemployed. And so I got a job helping a guy to shear sheep. And my first job was to go in this field and gather the sheep together. Okay? And it's, it was a, one of these um, uh, fields that kind of sloped upwards. <laughs> So I was running around this field. I was before I even got a few of them down there. I mean, it's a dog's job, you know. But but before I got a few of them down there, I was absolutely, you know, shattered. I mean, I'm, I'm a pretty fit guy about them, but um, I was shattered. And then you have to haul these things. These some of these sheep are big, and you have to haul these big, heavy things with these horrible, dirty. Uh, you know, thing, uh, the, uh, what do they call them? Yeah, the wolf, yeah, fleece, yeah. So you have to haul them onto their backsides, basically, so he can, he can, uh, grab them and, well, you, you, you know, they don't want to be, so you get peed on and you get all sorts of stuff. I'm sure that, you know, by the end of that day, I was, I was slight. Yeah, this is this is not for me, not the life for me. <laughs> but anyway, I don't know why I went there. But but just to say that uh, I mean, a good shepherd is going to know all of his sheep, and he's going to care for all of his sheep. You see, he's not going to let them get away. There are some verses. Um, some of them are, are just badly interpreted. You know, when it says, uh, you know, I keep my body under lest after I've saved others, I myself will be a castaway. Well, that's not talking about his soul. It's talking about his ministry. That's what he's talking about there. Um, but there are some others that, that seem to point a kind of threatening finger towards that. And yet they, they're not strong enough to defeat what Paul says in Romans 8 or you know many of these other passages. This is a strong doctrine theologically. You've got a lot of hurdles to get over, okay, on, on this. Now, if, if you still feel that you can, a person can lose their salvation, I'm, I'm okay with that. I know Les holds that in certain circumstances, and I'm perfectly okay with him 
you know, I don't agree with him, and it, but I understand what he means by that. Ordinarily, he'd say, no, you can't. But in certain circumstances, that might be the case. Maybe. But you can't apply that to Hebrews 6 and 10. Okay, Hebrews 6 and 10 seems to be um, a little bit more uncomfortable. <laughs> so, uh, let's just read this passage in Hebrews 10. <clears throat> and uh, it's, where is it? It's in uh, verse... Um, 26 for if we sin willfully and the, the word willfully there is placed first in the Greek sentence now usually when a word is placed first in the Greek sentence that's put there for emphasis alright so willfully sinning after we've received the knowledge of the truth there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, the sacrifice for sins uh, is spoken of in uh, verse um, uh, earlier. Sorry, uh, Christ sprinkled us from an evil conscience in verse 22. But a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation, which will devour the adversaries. See, we've become adversaries. If, if that's the case. Anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Of how much worse punishment do you suppose will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant, that's the new covenant, by which he was sanctified a common thing and insulted the spirit of grace. And then we get, vengeance is mine, I will repay. <laughs> so this is... Uh, this is very strong language here. And it's difficult to fit that in, uh, as I said, to most people's doctrine that you can lose your salvation. Some people will press it, but then you, you, what do you do with Paul's language? And this does seem to be a conflict between these two doctrines. And that was the kind of thing that, that led me to kind of rethink this. Uh, I read some articles by a, a New Testament scholar by the name of Scott McKnight who uh, wrote on, on these problem passages and he really drives home the point that you know you just you cannot just pretend that these verses don't say what they say. So what are you going to do? And he's particularly writing about those reformed brothers who say that you can't lose your salvation and you know, the, the more Calvinistic ones and so on. And that their answers are not good answers. Um, there are typically, basically two answers that they give. Uh, the classic answer is given by people like John Owen and Arthur W. Pink and, and people like that, that these are not real Christians. They call themselves Christians, but they're nominal Christians. They're not really Christians. Do you see? Because they're not really Christians, then they can be lost because they were never saved, truly. Do you see? They may be members of the church, they may be even pastors and so on, but they're not just not saved. But that doesn't seem to 
fit with the language here. It says that these people are, are sanctified by the blood of the new covenant. <laughs> Um, you're not going to be sanctified by the blood of the new covenant uh, unless you've actually received Jesus. Um, the other one, which is a more contemporary version, is that this is written to Christians. See, they've tried to, to take the bull by the horns here. Yes, this is written to Christians, but no, you can't lose your salvation. All right, so what about the verses? Well... Even though you can't lose your salvation, you better watch it. Okay? You, you better, you know, check yourself. Make sure. So, in that interpretation, what God is, basically, is that God is, is saying, nothing can separate you from my love, and yet, just watch it. Just watch it. That's all. Because you could be damned, even though you won't be damned. But didn't he do that with the Israelites walking through the desert? And Moses is like, whoa, hold on. Right? How many times did Moses have to stand up when God was like, I'm done with you. This is so ridiculous. Yeah, but, but what, this stuff wasn't written of Israel in the Old Testament, you see. But this is, this is doctrinally true of us. Right, but it was still it was part, right? And it's still... That was the whole, the whole reason. Well, well, see, that's you're proving my point. Because <laughs> you didn't know you were proving my point, but I, you are proving my point. Because, see, this stuff is written to us, and that's why that doesn't work very well. But you know where it does work? That works really well if this isn't written directly to Christians, but it's written to Israelites, Hebrews. Maybe, perhaps, in the tribulation period, mm. then it would appear that that would fit in because that threat would be real, mm-hmm. just as it was back then in, with Israel. It was a real threat. Right. Do you see? Mm-hmm. But but the saber rattling one, which is what I call it, the saber rattling uh, thing that you're a Christian, you can't lose it, but yeah, better watch it. Um, that's to me. That's toying with the, with what the text is saying. Um, we also noticed the idea of striving. Remember last week, all of this striving and entering and working and and it's really very worky, uh, isn't it? It's kind of faith and works together. Now we're justified by faith always. We're never justified by our works, but in some contexts in the Old Testament, you know, if you didn't do stuff, then you could not be saved. If you were a Jew and you didn't sacrifice on a day of atonement, oh, sorry, sacrifice an animal, and you didn't afflict yourself on a day of atonement, you would not be forgiven. Do you see? It wasn't the same as trusting in Christ, a once for all thing, and we're done. So, um, we have to, to mark those contrasts out. It's just the way that the Bible um, teaches it. And we've seen those things. Have you ever noticed when you've read through the Old Testament how few times saints in the Old Testament have seemed to have assurance 
and speak about the assurance of life after death. Even David. Okay? They don't have a lot of assurance, but, but New Testament's full of it. Why? Well, it's because Christ has come. It's because, um, you know, that the um, captivity has been led captive by Christ in his resurrection. There's, there's a difference between before Christ and after Christ. It makes a big difference. All right, so with these things in mind, um, let's go from verse 32. Hebrews 10. But recall the former days in which after you were illuminated, you endured a great struggle with sufferings, partly while you were made a spectacle both by reproaches and tribulations and partly while you became companions of those who were so treated. For you had compassion on me in my chains and joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods, knowing that you have a better and an enduring possession for yourselves in heaven. Although you may not have those words in heaven in there. So it's not always in, uh, not in the New Greek text. Uh, now, it's a passage like that that makes people think Paul, because Paul was in chains. But Paul wasn't the only person in chains. Okay? He wasn't the only Christian in chains. And Paul always identifies himself as Paul. Do you see? There's always a lot of autobiographical stuff in Paul's epistles. So here, that's not enough for us to identify the author as Paul, particularly because the Greek that's used here is different than Paul's Greek doesn't mean that Paul couldn't write that Greek if he turned his mind to it, but then why would he? Because he wasn't, he told him, told us himself, he wasn't interested in uh, using you know, great rhetoric and, and stuff like that, but having plain speech. Therefore, do not cast away your confidence, which is great reward, for you have need to of endurance so that after you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise. There it is again, you see, endurance. And I've already pointed you last week to how similar this is to what Jesus says in Matthew 24 in the Olivet Discourse, where it says, he that endures to the end shall be saved. And that's, where are we at that time? We are looking uh, towards the coming of Christ. Do you see? Looking towards the kingdom. But we have to endure, or the people will have to endure that are in that, that time. But um, if pre-tribulationism is correct, it may not be, but I think it has the most going for it. If pre-tribulationism is correct and the church is removed, the body of Christ is removed from earth because it's completed uh, that's what Paul says in Romans 11 it calls it the fullness of the Gentiles because the Jew is, the church is mainly Gentile if that's the case then I hope you can see that people in the tribulation period if they're saved they cannot be joined to the church because the church has been completed do you see that? otherwise 
why would you even believe in a pre-tribulational rapture? Because the church would have to go through the tribulation in order for it to be completed at the second coming of Christ. That might be the case, but it doesn't seem to be the case because of all of the tribulational passages that you have to consider from uh, from Jeremiah 30 and Zechariah uh, 12 to 14 and Daniel 7, and 9 and 12 and you know these these passages which speak about these pass these um, uh, times of suffering for Jews, and then the salvation that follows. The book of Revelation seems to hone in on that, as we'll see. Um, so I think um, we we really do need to take this seriously. And so a quotation is given. And let's have a look at, at this quotation. What is it pointing to? Here it is. For yet a little while, and he who is coming will come, and will not tarry. Now the just shall live by faith, but if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. So do you see what's happening here? The two basic raw themes of Hebrews, as far as the admonitions are concerned, are right there in that passage. Let's, let's keep on. It won't be long. Let's strive to enter and let's not draw back. That's the, that's the kind of a dual warning you get all the time. It's in most of the chapters of Hebrews. And then the writer adds, but we are not of those who draw back to perdition, but of those who believe to the saving of the soul. And that might be interpreted as a rallying cry. Let's move on. I mean, he warns them. He keeps on warning them. And then, what does he do? He introduces the Old Testament saints in chapter 11 as examples of endurance, as examples of faith, but not, not just faith and sit on your backside and glide into heaven, but faith that's doing something. Do you see? All these guys did something. By faith, so-and-so did. Do you see? So the faith here, and again, most people miss this, it's not believing in Jesus. These people didn't believe in Jesus, that Jesus died on the cross and, and for their sins and rose again for their justification. They believed in something and they did something about it. And that's what God took notice of. Let's have a look. Definition of faith here. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. For by the elders, that's running back into the Old Testament, obtained a good testimony. By faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that the things which are seen were not made of the things which are visible. And this is an important world Christian worldview passage. And then it says in verse 4, by faith Abel offered. Do you see? He offered. Well, do you have to offer anything to God? To be saved? Okay. Do you have to offer yourself to God to be saved? So you have to receive him, but you don't have to offer yourself. He doesn't want you, as far as, you know, 
we're no good. We are to, in sanctification, offer ourselves as a living sacrifice daily to God and we have to transform our minds, do you see? Renew our minds and we, uh, you know, again, just speaking for myself, I don't do very well on that. But uh, but that just, that's not what gets me saved. Folks, if it is, I'm in rough shape. Okay? I'm just being honest. Maybe some of you are, you know, are, are doing a lot better for, than me in that area. But I know nobody's batting 300 or whatever it is that you bat. You bowl 300. <laughs> whatever score you get, have to get 300 in for a perfect score. Anyway, so... Um, Abel uh, talks about gifts. Enoch uh, was taken away so that he did not see death and was not found because God had taken him. For before he was taken, he had this testimony that he pleased God. He pleased God. Well, obviously he pleased God by the manner of life that he lived. And uh, then it says, we can't skip this verse, for without faith it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, that is, that he exists, and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. This is very true in all ages, in all respects. Uh, But how is this true? How is this true? Um, Without faith it's impossible to please him. So, I say... Let's see. Let me invent something. I'll invent some good news, alright? Alright, so, he who believes that So here is my gospel. Alright, so you let's say you have to have faith in this. Okay? And uh, so you're going to have faith. This is what you've got to believe. Yeah? Okay, here's the problem though. This here is a metaphor, isn't it? It's not literal. So what, if, what is it that you're supposed to believe? You can't, if you believe that I'm actually um, the best thing since sliced bread, but I'm not better than sliced bread, sliced bread's actually better than me. Do you see? Because it just says I'm the best thing since sliced bread. 
right? Mm-hmm. Then is that is that if and you believe that is that the faith that's going to save you? If you believe that uh, I'm just a fantastic guy, is that enough? Is that what I'm looking for? You see, do, do I want more than that? Do I want uh, your complete adulation? Is that the only thing I'm going to settle for? No. No, well, it might be. It, but it might be, you see. So, what is it that, that uh, you, you're having faith in? Um, maybe, maybe I don't actually mean any of this at all. Maybe I just mean that uh, you believe that, not that I'm the best thing, I'm too modest to, you know, to care about whether you think I'm the best thing. But I just want to test you to to see whether you can have faith in in something, whether you, you actually can exercise faith, and it's that faith that's the important thing. These are just little different perspectives to show you that the content of faith is really very important, isn't it? And this doesn't give you enough to, you know, content for you to be sure that your faith is the right kind of faith. So what's required in order for your faith to be more sure, more found, foundational? What do you need? No, no, I'm not going there. As far as this is concerned, just focus on this. Because there's ambiguity here, what needs to happen? Well, I need to try and get rid of that ambiguity, don't I? I need to, to be able to, uh, to write something here that all of you will understand. This is precisely what is required. This is the kind of faith that I'm looking for. Yeah? Wouldn't you have to do something to convince us? No, I just have to be more clear. I just have to write it more clearly. Okay? I'd have to just. No, 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 no. I'm not. But. but, I know. But um, what I'm I'm focusing on here is, is. Obviously, this is ridiculous. But I'm trying to focus your attention on the fact that, that the content of faith is really important. What you're to believe is crucial. And if there's ambiguity in the message that I say, or God says, which is more important, if God says you are to believe something, you need to know exactly what it is you are to believe. Because you can have faith in the wrong things. What if, you, what if God's communication is so ambiguous that you're not sure that you've got it. You're not sure that you believe in the right thing. Yeah? So what do we need? So what do we need? What do we need? The truth. Certainty. Certainty. How do you get certainty when we're dealing with words? We need clarity. Okay? This is what we need. Lucidity. Okay? 
without that, without uh, clear words that are used to convey the exact meaning, um, we have ambiguity. We need to get rid of ambiguity if faith is to function the way faith is to function. All right. Enough of this ridiculous... So a metaphor is not clarity. Is that what you're saying? A metaphor. A metaphor can give you clarity, but some metaphors don't. And it depends what context they're they're put in. Um, But in this, it doesn't give you enough clarity. I'm just trying to give you an example here. So, this is what we need. Okay, This is no good. It's not clear enough. It's not, you know... So, alright, this is stupid, so let's get rid of it. Look at the examples in Hebrews 11. By by faith they did this, by faith they did that. Let's have a look at uh, Noah in in verse 7. By faith Noah being divinely warned of things not yet seen, moved with godly fear, prepared an ark for the saving of his household, by which he condemned the world. So, um, and it, it goes on and says, became the heir of the righteousness, which is according to faith. So he was declared righteous through this, do you see? Which is why in Ezekiel 14, Noah is one of the great exemplars of faith in the Bible, along with Job and Daniel. So, um, what was it that Noah was to believe? Rain's coming, better build this boat, better build this ark. That's, he's clear. Man, he better be clear because this is a big thing, you know? Just think, this is the way my mind works sometimes, but just think, if God was one of these ambiguous, speak out of both sides of his mouth, deities, okay, there's Noah uh, working for years and years and years, working, building this great big ark, okay, people saying, what on earth are you doing, you're an idiot, you know, there aren't, there's no water around here, and so on. You're never going to float that thing. What are you doing? God told me. Do you see? And so he's finished it. God comes to him and says, what's that? (laughs) Do you see the problem? Noah's going to say, what do you mean, what's that? That's the ark you told me to build because you remember the rainfall thing and, you know, the flood and all that stuff. Oh, that. Okay, I don't want to mean that literally. <laughs> do you see? All that, all that, exactly. All that faith is misdirected. It's just useless. But God doesn't, my point is, God doesn't communicate that way. Let's have a look at Abraham. Um, And I'm going to um, come down here to verse 17, although we'll, we'll have to deal with some verses above that. Verse 17. 
This is one of the most important passages in the Bible for interpreting the Bible. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said, in Isaac, your seed shall be called. Concluding that God was able to raise him up, even from the dead, from which he also received him in a figurative sense. So this is Mount Moriah, Daniel, uh, Genesis 22. And he's Abraham. So Abraham's been waiting a long time for this son. In fact, so long that a few chapters earlier and quite a few years earlier, he makes a drastic, calamitous, interpretative mistake. And he decides that what God really meant when he promised a son was oh, I'm to have relations with Hagar. And we'll get a son that way. In a surrogate way. (laughs) Do you see? So, it's a hermeneutical error that leads to the birth of Ishmael, who's a wild man against everybody. Do you, do you see that? It's a hermeneutical error. It's an interpretative error that leads him that way. Now he understands, okay? Chapter 18, visit from the three men and all that stuff. Now he understands that, uh, no, it's Sarah who's going to have the child. Ha ha, she laughs. And uh, why is Sarah laughing? Yeah, I tell you, this time, at this time of year, Sarah will have a son. You see? We'll call him Lacta. Yes. So, uh, lo and behold, she has a son. This is the son. This is the son of promise. Finally. I mean, it's all right having all these wonderful promises about descendants and, uh, you know, descendants like the stars of the heavens and so on, but I don't even have a son. Okay? Kind of problem here. Have you ever been in problems like that with God? (laughs) It's like, great, I know you say all these great things, but look at my situation, right? It's not much going on here. Um, So how are you going to connect this where I am with that? And so here's Abraham having that problem in chapter 15 of Genesis. And uh, chapter 18, it's, it's made clear. And then uh, he's born. Um, and chapter 22 comes along. <laughs> Take your son, your only son, your beloved son, Isaac. If you read the narrative in Genesis 22, God is very clear. Your only son, whom you love. That one. You know, the one I promise. That one. Take him and offer him for a sacrifice. The place I will tell you. Think that was easy for Abraham? I trow not, in the words of King James. It wasn't easy. 
So he had three days to think about it. He had three days to, to go up there. Where's the sacrifice? Here's the, here's the wood. Where's sac- God will provide the sacrifice, son. Do you think he said that easily? Or do you think he said it with a heavy heart? Of course he said it with a really heavy heart. Okay? And there they are up there. And Abraham, what is he doing? He's binding his son. He's putting him on the altar. He's getting a knife out. Dude, you're taking things too literally. (laughs) If ever there was a time to spiritualize the word of God, that's it. Stop. That's, okay? Go and find a sheep and call it Isaac and kill that. (laughs) Do you see? God's not watching I mean, spiritualize it, for goodness sake. But Abraham didn't do that. And look at this passage. Look at it. He says, God tested his faith, verse 17. Okay? Focused on the promises there. Concluding, verse 19, that's reckoning that God was able to raise him up, even from the dead. So, faith guided his interpretation. Faith guided his reasoning. You see that? He would never have concluded that God was able to raise him up if he wasn't thinking literally. But because he interpreted literally, because his faith was in, this is what God said, God means what he says, this is what I'm going to do, and God's going to have to just raise him up again because he's the son of promise. If he hadn't have done that, he would not have been the great paragon of faith that he is in the scriptures. What is needed for faith to work? Clarity. And you cannot have clarity where you've got spiritualizing or allegorizing or typology. Why not? Tell me why not. All right. Don't tell me then. All right. Don't tell me. I'll tell you. Okay. It's not what was said, but that's true. But, but what's the problem with spiritualization? Yeah. You get in there. Have you ever been to one of these Bible studies where you all sit around in a circle and say, what do you think? Well, what do you think? Well, I think this. You know, it's shared ignorance, isn't it? And that's not how you... You never learn the Bible that way, okay? You're supposed to have a teacher. (laughs) But... um, But the problem with spiritualization is that you have your spiritualization and you have your spiritualization and you have your spiritualization. The problem with typology is that if you've got a certain theology, your type is going to fit in, you know, with your, with your theology, with your doctrines, do you see? Uh, if you have a different kind of theology, coincidentally, surprise, surprise, your types are not going to agree with hers, they're going to agree with your theology. So who's right? What hap- well, yes. But what, what happens 
what happens when you introduce types, spiritualization, allegorization, symbolic stuff, then you've got to interpret the symbols. You don't just interpret the words, then you've got to say, oh yeah, but these symbols. And then you've got to say, yeah, but you've got to argue, yeah, but this symbol could mean this. In fact, some people do say it means that, do you see? So when you introduce uh, spiritualization, you introduce always ambiguity. You know what I mean? You always introduce uncertainty. You you cloud it, but you need clarity. The only way you can get clarity is if the words mean what they say. The, The U.S. Constitution means what it says. The only people that have problems with it are those that say it doesn't mean what it says. Do you see? Because they want to contemporize it to mean what they want it to say. It's the same thing with the Bible, yes. And so, so this is really key. Abraham, he is the great uh, example of a man who took God at face value. That's what we're to do. He's commended for it. Noah built an ark because he didn't expect God to turn up a hundred years later saying, what on earth that? Do you see? Because he knew that God means what he says and that God is reliable and he, know, he remembers what he says. The fixity of the word of God is the, the, the final court of appeal for the Christian. So, um, let's go back then to uh, verse 8, because there's a lot on Abraham here, and some of this stuff, uh, this is where our good friends, um, the supersessionists, or the people that believe that the church is now the new Israel, they, they like this passage. So let's have a look at it. By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place which he would receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith he dwelt in the land of promise as in a foreign country, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the, with heirs, sorry, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he waited for a city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Well, that's obviously, you know, nothing that he found or saw in the days of his flesh on earth. What's this talking about? What's this city? Well, it's a, it's a heavenly city, isn't it? Okay? And uh, look at verse 15. Truly, if they had called to mind that country from which they had come out, they would have had opportunity to return. But now they desire a better, that is a heavenly. Therefore God is not ashamed to call, be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Well, it's a heavenly city. So here's the argument. 
reading the New, the New Testament back into the Old Testament context, yeah, but look, don't you guys take the Old Testament seriously? Abraham didn't take it literally. Abraham knew that this land, this bit of land that he was to walk through, you know, he knew that wasn't his real inheritance. He actually looked for a heaven, the New Jerusalem. So, let's not take all these Old Testament promises about the land of Israel and about Jerusalem, literally. Abraham didn't. There's the argument, do you see? Okay, it's easily answered if we just read the Old Testament. Do you realize in Genesis 15 that God told when he put Abraham to sleep, he told him that he would sleep with his fathers and that his people would go into another country and come out in the fourth generation? I mean, he prophesied the captivity and the exodus in Genesis 15. Does that mean that God didn't mean what he said in the rest of chapter 15? I mean, if he meant what he said in that bit, when he described the land and the inheritance and the boundaries of it, do you think he meant what he said there? Of course he did. Because there is no contradiction between Abraham looking for a heavenly city because he knew he wouldn't, he himself wouldn't inherit these covenant promises and the covenant promises themselves being literally true. Abraham knew he was going to die and go to heaven. So, of course, he looked for a heavenly country. Didn't mean that what God promised about, the, about Israel or Canaan wasn't true. So, that's how you answer that, okay? You just answer it by actually paying attention to what the Bible says and not letting these people just read a few verses from the New Testament and, and rewrite, basically, a the whole of the Old Testament prophets because they have not bothered to actually read a passage in Genesis 15. Of course he looked for a heavenly country. So what? God's covenants stand. So, chapter 12 Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and was sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. We, we know, we apply these, to our, these verses to ourselves and we can do, but try applying them to a Hebrew believer in Jesus as Messiah in the tribulation. Then they really do have to endure. Then you can see these verses take on a different aspect because they really do have to look up to Jesus and his suffering because they're suffering. Yes? And... Uh, the idea of running the race. Yes, it's a Pauline metaphor, but it's not. It's a common metaphor in the ancient world. 
Again, it doesn't contradict what I've been saying. Um, Verse 9. Furthermore, we have had human fathers who corrected us and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the Father of Spirits and live? Oh, yes. For they indeed for a few days chastened us as seemed best to them, but he for our profit, that we may be partakers of his holiness. Now, uh, now no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. And then he says, you know, strengthen the hands that hang down and the feeble knees, make straight paths for your feet, and so on and so forth. Get on with it. Pursue holiness. Um, there is nothing in there that can't be applied to us, but it also fits very well to a, an Israelite saint in the tribulation. Again, you, you might say, well, yeah, but stop, Henry, stop with all this tribulation stuff because Hebrews was written in the church age. So was the book of Revelation. So was the Gospel of Matthew. So was Matthew 24. So what? doesn't mean everything that's written in the church age is for the church. Do you see? Yes. You cannot find the church, uh, you know, with... Uh, you could use the Hubble telescope and you could not find the church in Matthew 24. It's not there. Do you see? It's just not there. It's talking about Israel. And it's not in the book of Revelation either, after chapter 3, as we'll see. Moving on, verse 18. But For you have not come to the mountain that may be touched and uh, that burned with fire, There's, this is the law, and to blackness and darkness and tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and the voice of words so that those who heard it begged that the word should not be spoken to them any more, for they could not endure what was commanded. And if so much as a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned or shot through with an arrow. And so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I am exceedingly afraid and trembling. Well, so what? I mean, yeah, it's great, it's good dramatic stuff, and it's all law stuff, and it's you know it's a great story, but I'm not concerned about that really. Can't, I mean, I don't want to be glib about it, but why bring it up? Why bring it up to? I mean, Paul never brings this stuff up, you know. Moses being terrified and all this sort of stuff, but it it fits if it's Israel trying to enter into another rest, as we saw last week. And so he says, But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn, church, remember, means a called out assembly, who are registered in heaven, and to God the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect, to Jesus the mediator of the new covenant, and to blood, the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. He's, this is the contrast between the law that Hebrews 
recognize and the new covenant. Do you see? Again, he's, he's pointing out that you're going into something new. And I remind you folks that in the, uh, in the Old Testament prophets, the new covenant is not made with Israel until the second coming. We ran the verses, okay? Hopefully you've got them in your notebooks because I, I paid, I, I showed you these passages. These are second, where it mentions redemption of Israel, they're second coming passages. Okay? They deal with the, uh, you know, streams in the desert and the, the, the uh, blessings on the land and blessings on the people and peace and safety and all this stuff. Didn't apply to the first coming. They didn't get peace and safety and blessings and all any of that. But they will when the branch uh, begins his reign, the Prince of Peace. That's when the new covenant's going to be made. After they've wept, after they've beheld him whom they pierced, that second coming material. And in fact, Guess what? We are real close to second coming here. Let's keep reading. See that you do not refuse him who speaks, for if they did not escape who refused him who spoke on earth, much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him who speaks from heaven, whose voice then shook the earth. But now he has promised, saying, Yet once more I shake not only the earth, but also the heaven. Now this, yet once more, indicates the removal of those things which are being shaken, as of things that are made, that the things which cannot be shaken may remain. Um, therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear, for our God is a consuming fire. Warning again, we're heading for a kingdom, an everlasting kingdom. Uh, the heavens are going to be shaken. Matthew 24, second coming. Okay? It all fits, do you see? And then in chapter 13. Um, Let's go from verse 10. We have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. You see how, again, this is very, very Jewish. Paul doesn't write like this to the church, to the Gentiles. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned outside the camp. Leviticus 4, and someone tells us that. Therefore Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered outside the gate. Therefore let us go forth to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. For here we have no continuing city, but we seek the one to come. 
nice application to the to us right now, but uh, even a much a much more literal application if this really is written to Hebrews in the days of his of uh, the last days, as it says, for those who are striving to enter into the second rest, the kingdom. So. Are you saying no, we don't know who wrote Hebrews. So there are all kinds of ideas about that. Okay, Most people reject that it was the Apostle Paul. And the reason that they reject Paul, even though Timothy is mentioned in verse 23 there, but Timothy went around all over the place, um, is because it's not like a Pauline epistle. Some of the doctrines don't line up clearly, especially the salvation ones, with what Paul says in uh, Ephesians and Romans and so on. And, um, you know, the style and the way of arguing is very different than than any of Paul's epistles. Paul is a meandering kind of a writer. You know, Paul, uh, Ephesians 2, if you want to look at Ephesians 2 as an example, (laughs) you you, you go into Ephesians 4, blah, 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 and then he's off here. It's like, okay, but get back to the point, you see? You know, Paul goes off on these trajectories. And so, um, the writer of the Hebrews doesn't. He builds his argument. He keeps coming back to arguments and, and keeps recapitulating things. But he's building always. He's moving forward with his argumentation. He's very careful uh, with the perspectives that he takes and, and with the way that he builds uh, an argument and the contrasts up. So it's not like Paul at all. Uh, it's written in classical Greek, not Koine, not the Koine Greek that Paul uses. It's more cl- more classical, I should say. Um, so some people have said because Luke, who wrote the Gospel of Luke and Book of Acts, of course, Luke uses some, some stylish Greek too, especially at the uh, the prologues of his uh, books that Luke is capable of this. And so there is a, uh, a good book by a man called David Allen, Southern Baptist uh, scholar, who advocates for Luke being the writer. There are others that, that say Apollos may be the writer. That would fit. He knew Timothy. He was in chains and so on. That would fit. He was an orator. Do you see? So that, that would work. So some people say Apollos. But guess what? We don't know. Because it doesn't say. (laughs) Which is fine. You don't have to know who the author is. All you need to know is that it's inspired. Okay, so let's move on. So, my heresy is, just to repeat, so you, you know, if you're going to accuse me of heresy, you get it right. Um, my heresy is that the book of Hebrews, nothing changes as far as its application, doctrinal application to Christians, apart from the warning passages. The warning passages are not written to Christians, because Hebrews is written to Hebrews. It doesn't even say it's written to Christian Hebrews. It's, and in fact, the language that's used, yes, 
they are they believe that Jesus is the Christ. Yes, they um, they've been sanctified and so on, but they're striving to enter rest. And it's like it's written to the people of Israel. They're striving, just like the ancient people of Israel strove with Joshua. Now here's another Joshua, who they are going into the kingdom with, following his example. Do you see? That's how you interpret. I think, Hebrews, and there's only one place you can stick that scenario. And that is in the tribulation. Or Matthew 24, if you don't want to call it the tribulation, stick it in Matthew 24 and deal with it there because it fits. And that's what I'm recommending that you do with it, but you don't have to do that. You don't have to do that. So James we can't spend a lot of time on. But James has written to the 12 tribes scattered abroad. Not the 12 Christian tribes. There aren't any Christian tribes. That would be dumb. Because what would that mean? That would mean the church is, is not unified. <laughs> okay? There aren't Christian tribes. But there certainly are Jewish tribes that were scattered abroad. The diaspora. Okay, Paul talked about the tw- our twelve tribes instantly serving Jesus, uh, serving God, in Acts twenty six. So the, the, every time you see the twelve tribes, it's the twelve tribes of Israel. There's no reason not to think this is the twelve tribes of Israel. Now, does it say the Christians? No. May, are they Christians? Maybe. Maybe in this in this sense, that's possible. Okay. Although there are some things that are said in James, particularly about rich people, that you make you wonder. You know, maybe some of them aren't saved. Well, you know, you get that in Paul too. I think uh, the book of James certainly is probably a church epistle. But it is focused and written to the twelve tribes uh, of Israel. So you have to deal with that. It's also, I don't know if you know this, but it's also modelled after the Sermon on the Mount. Structurally, the book of James is, is uh, structured after the Sermon on the Mount. And there's been a number of studies done to show how clear that is. We can't go into that here because I'm running out of time. Uh, but interestingly, if we turn to chapter 5... What we do see is, in verse 7, some interesting material that at least we can uh, pick up on. Therefore be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, waiting patiently for it until it receives the early and latter rain. What's the early and latter rain? Well, if there are any Pentecostals here, I'm sorry, but it's not the Holy Spirit. It really is early rain and late rain <laughs> in Israel. That's what it is. Okay? If you lived in Israel, by the way, you'd understand this very well. Like, cause they need the rain, early and latter rain. They need it. So that's what it is. And again, that focuses us in on Israel. Even though it's written to the diaspora, this is this Jewishness that's about it. But he says here, 
Um, you also be patient. Establish your heart for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brethren, lest you be condemned. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. My brethren, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord as an example of suffering and patience. Indeed, we count them blessed who endure. You have heard of the perseverance of Job and seen the end intended by the Lord, that the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brethren, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath. Let your yes be yes and your no, no, lest you fall into judgment. That's just what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing psalms. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church, again the assembly, but it could be the church, Okay, no problem there. And let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. That's what Jews did. And the prayer of faith will save the sick. And the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Confess your trespasses one to another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain and it did not rain on the land for three years and six months. Now, First Kings 17, it says three years. James says three years, six months because James has given us a bit more information. He's saying that it hadn't rained for six months since, you know, previous to uh, um, Elijah's meeting with Ahab. Which makes sense, okay? I mean, just imagine the scenario where Elijah comes in dripping wet because the weather's been like this and says, uh, as the Lord lives before whom I stand, it will not rain in Israel until my word, okay? Well, they're usually sopping wet. Ahab's not going to take him very seriously. But if it's been, if it had a drought for six months and Elijah does that, that's going to be a really big impact. Do you see? Like, this is going to continue, dude. And so, three years and six months. Well, guess what? Three years, six months. Three and a half years. Elijah. Did you know, well you did know if you've been paying attention, (laughs) if you've been here, but the last three people mentioned in the Old Testament are who? Elijah, Elijah, Moses and the Lord. Okay? The Mount of Transfiguration where Jesus says, some of you will not see death until you see the kingdom of heaven coming. Or the kingdom of God. And then the next day they were taken up to the Mount of Transfiguration and they saw Jesus transformed, transfigured. Did they see the kingdom? Did they see the earth transformed? No, no they didn't see the earth. They didn't need to see the earth transformed. They saw him transformed. And he's the king. So the king represents the kingdom. Do you see? 
they saw in his transformation the potential transformation of the world. They did see it in him. So he said later on to the Pharisees, the kingdom of heaven is within you. That is, in your midst. Me. You just don't see it. Do you see? They did see it because they saw who he really was. That was a, um, um, a picture, a prophetic picture of the kingdom of the second coming. Sorry, the second coming. How do I know that? Well, let's look at what Peter says. <clears throat> That's second Peter. Chapter 1. Did I say second? Yes, Second Peter chapter 1, verse 19. Uh, no, not verse 19. Verse uh, 15. Moreover, I will be careful to ensure that you always have a reminder of these things after my decease. For we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. What's he talking about? Is he talking about just those three and a half years that they saw Jesus do amazing things? No, actually they're not. He's not saying that. For he received from God the, the Father honour and glory with such a voice when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. Transfiguration. It's the transfiguration. He says, we saw the power and coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. The coming of the Lord Jesus Christ? You can understand the power bit, but what about the coming? Well, Jesus himself interpreted it. He said that it would be the kingdom that they would see. We spent quite a few weeks, didn't we, in this course, focusing on how the kingdom in the Gospels is the future kingdom. That's how they would have understood it. So this is a, what they saw in the transfiguration is a portrayal of the second coming of Christ when Jesus himself does come in great glory. Do you see? So, the transfiguration therefore is that, uh, that um, prediction of, uh, of the second coming, a picture of the second coming. Don't have time to do a lot of this stuff, guys. I'm sorry. I do apologize. Um, but we can, what we can do is uh, we can go to, let's go to uh, well, go to Second Peter. Uh, there's some places in First Peter. If you, First Peter, if you look at First Peter, you'll notice he focuses on the second coming. He's talking about when he talks about salvation. Usually, he's talking about glorification. He's not talking about salvation in the way that 
Paul often talks about it, although Paul talks about it in that way too. But he's talking about final salvation. When all this, you know, I'm not wearing glasses anymore. Yeah? You know, you guys, whoever's wearing hearing aids, you're not wearing them anymore. Okay? You grow a beard and it's not grey like that. You see? I mean, it's... You understand, yes? You don't need to use moisturizer or anything like that. So, that's the salvation that, that uh, he's talking about in First Peter. Second Peter has some interesting stuff in it that we should at least pay a little bit of attention to. And uh, chapter 3 introduces us to that. Beloved, I now write to you this second epistle in both of which I stir up your pure minds by way of reminder that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Saviour. Knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days walking according to their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. People scoff because the creation project seems to be stalled. It's not stalled. God has a plan. We've tried to see that. For this they willingly forget that by the word of God the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of the water and in the water by which the world that then existed perished being flooded with water. Um, difficult. It's a difficult passage this because of some of the language that Peter uses. But he seems to be uh, bringing several ideas together and giving us a general kind of um, theme. Okay, The theme that uh, creation from waters, and the earth did emerge out from the waters, yes? Yeah. Yeah. But then waters in the time of Noah overwhelmed that planet again, do you see? And he, what he does, he says that uh, he calls uh, the world that then existed, he says, perished. The world that then existed, verse 6. So, what he's doing is he's drawing a line um, after the floodwaters are on the earth. There's a line over that history. That's the world that then was. We don't live in that world anymore. That world is not available to us. You know, it wasn't a local flood. I mean, it, it churned up the whole shooting match. So that nothing is the same on earth as it was yeah, before the flood. It, it's a different planet. And it's the same planet, but it's a different planet. It's like having uh, uh, paper mache um, mask okay, that's wet and you have a face on it and then someone comes along and smears it all up Okay, and puts another face on it. Well, it's the same balloon, same paper mache, but it's different. Do you see? It's the same planet, but it's not the same planet. And that's what Peter's saying. It's gone. It's gone. 
It's the world that was and it perished. And then he says that the heavens and the earth which are now, that's the, these, okay? The heavens and the earth which are now. Now the problem is he says heavens and earth. Well the heavens weren't overcome by a flood. You see, but he may be alluding to a change in the atmosphere that the flood waters um, instantiated. I'm not talking about a canopy, and you know the canopy theory has some issues with it, uh, like boiling alive and stuff like that, pressure cooker problems. But um, I mean. Still a possibility, but you know the models don't seem to work very well. But whatever, certainly uh, a controlled environment that was different, which would have meant there's a different sky and so on, slightly different anyway. So he may be talking about that. But let's get on with what he he does say: the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men so yes it's a prophet yes so he's saying here that um, so the present planet okay is preserved by the same word what word well the word of the of Noah, in the, con- in, in the uh, covenant, I will not bring upon the earth another flood, another one of these. That's in the oath. And it's, that's what guarantees it. Okay? So, this present planet is, is uh, preserved until... No, not the day, second coming. No, not until after says the day of judgment now whether the day of judgment is the second coming has to be determined but you see but then it is given over to fire alright that's definitely after the second coming of fire right well you would think so yeah okay <laughs> I don't know. I think but it, how long after the second coming is a question. Yeah. So let's read again. There's a little bit more here. Um, but beloved, do not forget this one thing: that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. So again, this is a great opportunity for uh, those people that don't want to believe in a literal thousand year reign, uh, they can come in and they, this is a, a verse that they can snatch. Okay? It doesn't actually, it's not about what they use it for, but they snatch it out as a proof text to whack people with. And all it's saying is that, look, as far as God's concerned, you might have mockers yeah, who say, well, where's the promise of his coming? But as far as God's concerned, the passage of time isn't, isn't like this, nothing. So let's go be more on God's timetable and be pr- patient because with God, a thousand years is as a day. It's, it's not a big deal. Just be patient, okay? 
that's, that's the context here. It's not saying that, oh, we can take this back into Genesis chapter 1 and say that the day is a thousand years long. He's not even talking about that stuff, is he? Do you see? And by the way, a thousand year uh, day in Genesis 1 would have Adam die before the end of the, seventh, the sixth day. He wouldn't even see the seventh day. Because he died, he was 900 and something years old, wasn't he? 920 odd. He didn't even make it to a thousand. So, do you see how silly? Well, he wasn't created on the first day. No, I'm saying even on the sixth day. Yeah. I mean, see, see how silly that is, playing with scripture that way? Just look at the context. The context helps you to see what the writer's saying. Um, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but his long suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. We know about that. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. Now, what's he talking about? Is he talking about the rapture? Is he talking about the tribulation? Is he talking about the second coming? We don't know until he... Yeah, we don't know. In which the heavens will pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt with fervent heat. You know, so these guys, you know, the physicists that are saying that uh, the far future scenarios for the universe are freeze or fry. And the fry alternative is, is right. It's just going to come about quicker than they think. <laughs> but it says here, the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, see the, the uh, adjectives he's using? Verse uh, 12, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. All right. So, if this is a second coming, then the second coming, at the second coming, the earth burns up, the whole elements are destroyed and God creates a new heavens and new earth right then. But what happened to all the kingdom promises? What happened to all these great promises of Peter himself talking about the coming kingdom and so on? Um, has he just you know, made us all our millennialists right at the end of the Bible in preparation for the book of Revelation so we can spiritualize it? Is, is that what's going on here? No, folks. Peter is, when he, we talk about the day of the Lord, we're not talking about one particular thing. The context will decide for us what it means. Sometimes the day of the Lord means uh, something that happened in history, but it was God acting in judgment in history. Um, you find that, I think it's uh, in Joel uses it in that sense. Uh, don't quote me because I'm really tired and might be making a mistake there. But uh, sometimes it's used in that sense. 
often it's used in the sense of Christ's second coming. Sometimes it's used in, in the sense of things before the second coming, that is the tribulation. Sometimes it's the, it's the um, tribulation and the second coming. But often in the prophets, the second coming is a day of vengeance, especially in Isaiah. Three times at least in Isaiah. Um, sometimes it could be as in First um, Thessalonians chapter 5, it's the tribulation period. The day of wrath. Okay, when they say peace and safety, sudden distress will come upon them. Um, and here, it's the end of the tribulation. It's, sorry, the end of the millennial reign. It's the, the very end of it. Do you see? Because the great conflagration at the end of the age will be the burning of this whole planet. And that's a kind of a day of the Lord thing, isn't it? It's kind of a big deal. Um, if you go to Revelation chapter 20, it says here, <clears throat> Verse 11, then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it from whose faith the earth and the heaven fled away and there was found no place for them. Revelation 20 verse 11. Okay. You see that? Mm-hmm. Now, this means that this heaven and this earth will be destroyed. Peter tells us how it's going to be destroyed by conflagration, by fire. The elements dissolving. Some people say that's just a cleansing fire. Okay? That's just a fire coming through like you know, burning a field or something like that. Just cleansing it and it's going to be renovated. Okay, But melting the elements sounds a little bit more final than that to me. Um, and then, you know, talking about the elements melting and the fire and all that stuff, and then there'll be a new heavens and new earth, that sounds like a, a replacement of the present uh, heavens and earth, which is what you read of in the book of Revelation. Yes? Yes. And remember when we looked at 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and we said that the work of Jesus includes ruling on this planet... Um, and offering this planet up to the Father. So, and then God will be all in all. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, we went through that. Do you, do you guys remember that? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Encourage me, please. We're right at the end of these. Okay. So, um, this, it, the burning up of the planet is kind of, you might think of it as a sacrificial burning, an offering made to God by the Son after he has uh, and how's, what's an offering to be? What's an offering to be? I don't understand the question. Oh, uh, sorry. <laughs> sorry. 
What? Pure, yeah. Spotless, yeah. Do you see? So he makes, during his reign, he makes the planet spotless. At the end, as the book of Revelation will tell us, there's uh, Satan's released, gets a great big army of sinners to come against Jerusalem. Fire comes down. Bam, they're gone. So Genesis 3.15 is fulfilled then. Then we're ready for, you know, it's done. I mean, the whole creation project's done. All we need to do now is present it back to God. You see that? It is cool, isn't it? It's really cool. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, in a sense. As a, but it's a love offering. It's, a, it's a, not so much a burnt offering, but a, but as a, I know that that consumed the whole of the, the offering, so you could be right, but it's not a sin burnt offering. It's just a, an offering to God um, of a work done. And we think, yeah, but it's a long work, dude. I mean, it's, this thing started thousands of years ago. Yeah, but with the Lord, on days of the year, yeah, you see? That's how you're supposed to, you've got to think in those terms more and you start to see, I think, that, that this is a project. The creation is, is a project. And it has a conclusion. And after that conclusion, there's a new beginning. But the new beginning is connected to the old one. The only question that has to be asked is, well, why does he have to burn the thing up in the first place? I mean, if Satan's dead, if Satan's done away with and sin's done away with, why not just continue? Okay, I mean, why... Why burn the place up? Yes, it's because it's cursed. That's the only that's the only thing that makes sense. Even even um, Christ reigning on the earth can't get rid of the curse. He can subdue the curse. He can stop thorns and thistles coming up. But if he didn't, thorns and thistles would come up. He can quieten the animals and stop them biting chunks out of each other. But if he didn't, they would bite chunks out of each other. Do you see? So there's, because of that, there's something not right, still not right. Yes, he, by his goodness and by his presence and by his power, has everything subdued and everything is peaceful but it's not perfect that's what the new heavens and new earth are for do you see at least that's what I think um, so we're ready we're, we're ready to finish uh, we're ready to go into the book of Revelation next week um, we can't do Jude I'm sorry about that we don't have time Jude has a few interesting things, but you can read it for yourself. Uh, so we're ready to go into the book of Revelation. Obviously, the book of Revelation is a long book. Well, it's not that long, but it's, it's tough. So what you need to do is read the book of Revelation. Come on, we're at the end of the course, guys. So read the entire book of Revelation. Pay attention to <laughs> pay attention to uh, what is said. 
pay attention to the allusions that you might recognize to the Old Testament. The book of Revelation quotes the Old Testament more than any other book in the New Testament. Usually, it doesn't quote it really too much, alludes to it. Okay? So you've got to know your Old Testament in order to interpret the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation is kind of a capstone on the Bible. Um, we have in these courses, I have tried to teach you some of the main, um, the main themes, particularly the covenantal themes, which are God, you know, really promising to do something, uh, in the Old Testament. I've taken you through the New Testament, albeit somewhat briefly, and I've showed you that nothing, you don't have to reinterpret the Old Testament by the New Testament. There's a continuity between the two. Um, and now we get to the book of Revelation, and you're blessed once at the beginning, chapter 1, verse 4, once at the end, chapter 22, verse something or other, uh, in the book of Revelation, you are blessed for keeping the words of the prophecy. So you can get a blessing from reading it and, and keeping the words. So read it with, uh, go through your notes from, you know, the last year. <laughs> Those of you that can. Gary can maybe scrounge some from other people. Um, and, uh, and look at the references, look at the, um, um, the teleology and the eschatology. Remember those two big words? We haven't written them for a while, but the creation project. Consists of teleology and eschatology. Okay, or a goal or purpose. Okay, and a, if you want a finale, okay, or culmination. The whole of the Bible is eschatological and teleological. Those two things together. It is a forward movement towards this. Some people like to say that the big theme of the Bible is the kingdom of God. Okay? Um, and they, what they mean by that, I don't think that's right. Okay? Uh, the reason I don't think it's right is because for example, in the book of Genesis, you don't even have the word throne. You have it twice in the, in the book of Genesis, you know. It's not a big thing in, in the book of Genesis. Uh, it's, not, it's only a big thing as far as Israel is concerned in the Old Testament. And it's not a huge thing. I mean, it is in the Gospel of Matthew and Luke. But it's not a huge thing in uh, a lot of the New Testament. So to make this the theme is, I think, difficult. Although this certainly is what it's all about. Do you see? So if you say the kingdom of God as far as the consummation is concerned, what all of this is going to, then you, you're right. But to interpret the Bible in terms of the kingdom of God, I think, is incorrect. 
I think you're much better interpreting it by the doctrine of creation. Why did God make the place in the first place? What's he doing with it? Now he's made it. That gets you much further. And uh, I think it opens your eyes a bit more too. All right, we have a lot to do next week, folks. Um, that, the that will be the last one, Lord willing, yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, after that, so we, we may have to go a little later next week to get through all of, of the material. I hope that you'll be patient with me, but it, you know, it's the last one of the last course. So this is the last of the last next week. Um, so, you know, we do need to do some tie-up and so on. I won't be able to give you a complete commentary of the book of Revelation. But I will be able to, I hope, put together different strands, different things, different themes. Uh, we'll run together so that you can basically see that there's nothing new as far as no change in doctrine, but there is additional information now being put in to the book. Um, and that fills out the picture. So, any questions or observations before we close? Yes. Um, the twelve tribes spread abroad. Why are the twelve tribes Jewish when Jews, from what I understand, are Judah? No, Jews. Because Judah means, you know, is where the Jews were taken. It's one son, the Jews. Yes, because but. But he was a Jew. He calls himself a Jew. Yeah, Yeah, because Jew. The the idea of Jew doesn't really come from Judah. It just comes from. uh, Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's not just focused on Judah. And then just an observation. Yes. In Peter, when he was talking about the heavens and the earth, would be. It seems like because of the context and he brought the heavens in there that he's talking about more than Noah's flood. I mean, just to me. Well, uh, like I said, what he's doing is packing ideas together. And uh, that's why he packs them together when he talks about Day of the Lord as well. Yeah. Okay, so you've got to see that stylistic. Yes. Yes. So you've got to look at the theme. What's the theme that he's putting across? The theme that he's putting across is creation from water, then water overcoming that, uh, that earth and it emerging again out of the water. That's the picture. And he puts it in two verses. And you see, so, <laughs> yeah, so that's, that's kind of a Jewish way of, of sometimes doing it. It's called targeting, I suppose is one way of, of putting it. Um, so he's just compacting a few things together that you've, yeah, like yeah, yeah, he's not doing a strict, uh, um, this directly follows this and, that, you know, that's not what he's doing.